The only boundaries that I guess that are really out there are the ones in your own head. Welcome. You are listening to the Jordan Baylor Draft, a podcast that inspires writers to push through their limiting beliefs and blow the lid off of their personal creativity. My name is Jordan Baylor, a filmmaker best known for my animated web series, Love the Moochers. Listen as I sit down with writers to talk methods, habits, lessons learned, and how to make a beneficial impact with your work. Today is a new draft. Rewrite yours and improve. What is life? The steps you're taking today, like how will they impact tomorrow? Like these are big questions that I ask myself because I like to overthink things, but I think about them all the time. Um, today's interview with Alex Simmons is probably one of the most important interviews I've ever done, if not the most important one I've ever done, because I got to thank one of the pillars of people that inspired me and influenced me and made me proud of myself as a child, like, like who I am, what and, and who I come from and basically what I'm about. And at the beginning of the interview, I didn't even know it. Alex Simmons is a writer who's been writing since he was a child. He's an older black writer who's written for DC Comics, Archie Comics, uh, wrote an unpublished script for Superman, went on to write his own independent comic books. I mean, he, he's he's just done so much. He's done plays. He's done... It's mind-blowing all the stuff he's done. And some of the books he wrote for children were books that I grew up reading. So when I got to see the books that he published, I was like, oh, wow, I remember that book as a child. So it was really, really weird. It, it, it all came full circle. In our interview, we touched on the process of writing for Batman and DC Comics, Archie Comics, and um, how to position yourself as a writer who wants to book that style and, and, and type of jobs. I really hope you glean the passion that Alex has for writing. I'd just like to tell Alex again, thank you for the interview. Thank you for your time and service. And I wouldn't be here without you, my friend. Here's our interview. Hi, welcome to another edition of the Jordan Baylor Draft, a series where we deep dive into the minds of authors, coaches, and industry creatives on what it takes to thrive as a writer. I have on the line, this man is an award-winning writer. Simply put, this man is a creator of comic books, screenplays, stage plays, any written medium, basically. <laughs> He's written books for Disney, DC Comics, Penguin, Simon & Schuster, and many, many more. Meet the magnificent writer that is Alex Simmons. How are you doing? Hey, how are you doing there, Jordan? Pleasure. Thank you for having me here. Of course, of course. Um, I like to start off every interview and ask, who is Alex? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still trying to figure that out. Um, I, I guess simply put, uh, because we have limited time, uh, mm -hmm. I'm I'm an African-American male who was born and raised in New York City. Uh, I grew up with a single mom who was extraordinary. I say extraordinary for a bunch of loving reasons. 
But in particular, uh, she had a lot of health issues and struggling on her own in quite a number of ways and still instilled in me uh, Mm -hmm. a sense of pride and value and ethics and struggle and never lost her heart, never lost her center as a human being and a, a loving, caring human being. She was not a bitter woman and it helped me not to be a bitter person. Uh, she never told me that I couldn't blah, 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 because we were black or poor and yeah. that stuff. And that was key because I had this imagination that just took off, you know, from day one. I'm just like imagining all kinds of possibilities. And she never said, no, no the man ain't going to let you this or the world isn't going to. She would just say, earn it, you know, work for it, earn it, be a decent person. And I would say last but not least, I was a handful. Um, you know, I've been apologizing to her. <laughs> I'm sorry, mom. I didn't know. <laughs> but, you know, again, I was, I was not a wild kid as in terms of street dangers and things like that. But, you know, again, very, very imaginative and, and wanting things and, and go, wanting to travel and do stuff. And I would watch foreign films because I knew there was something bigger than my block. And, you know, mm. I'm driving this lady crazy, asking her all kinds of questions and wanting to see stuff. And somehow, you know, she never threw me out the window, you know, so I <laughs> um, and I love her madly. And even uh, I've been blessed to teach master classes in writing and so forth, not only here in the United States, but in Europe and in Africa. And I can't really think of a presentation that I didn't start off by thanking her for letting wow. me grow into the person that I am. So. Anything I say to you today, a good portion of that is because that lady was here. That is absolutely beautiful. She had, sounds like she had unlimited patience with you and let uh, you. Uh, well, you know, sometimes she lost a little bit of it. Freaked <laughs> <laughs> me out just a wee bit. You understand what I'm saying? But, but the bottom line was, yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of love there, a lot of patience, a lot of understanding and, you know, all very much grounded in, in, in just being a decent human being. It's not, you know, high education and all that. It's like, I got to do what I can do to make it better for us so that you grow up and you have a better chance. So, you know, again, I respect all that. And and also I would say that, you know, also adding a little bit to what I am, which will come out as we talk more, is having a wild imagination and, and valuing that or exploring that, at least when you're young, you don't value it, but you explore it. Having that is so useful as a creative. Uh, as a dancer, or a composer, uh, an actor, a writer, whatever that creative is, you know, whatever that, that thing is in you that you, you have to create things, you have to make things, you have to discover things. Having an imagination that goes beyond the narrow, the, the, the what is, you know, that's necessary because one of the best questions to be a creative and to ask is what if, you know, what if things aren't this way? What if he or she didn't say such and such? What if? And then sort of springboard off of that. So, you know, I think it's necessary for a society. You know, it allows us to figure out what's the best parts of ourselves and how can we reach other, you know, go to new heights because things, you know, you can't just always use the same excuse. So it's always been that way, but it can be better. You know, it's on us to make it better. You know, uh, know, even as, 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 as black people, um, you know, some of the things that are said, and I've heard this said in other groups as well, but, you know, talking about my own, uh, you know, this isn't happening. That's not going to happen. You know, they're not letting us do such and such. And the question becomes, why are you waiting for permission? You know, mm. uh, you know, what is the phrase, you know, 
create the world that you want to live in. You know, so it, it, you know, if you think about, you know, my age is I'm up in the seniors uh, now, but if you think about what people before me went through and the, and the generation before that, you know, and then you look at what we're dealing with. Yeah, this is hard, but hey, we wouldn't have this if other folks hadn't, you know, carried that weight. And so it becomes our responsibility to carry the weight we have now. You know, and if we drop it and just give up, then what are we what are we handing off to our kids? What are we handing off to the future generations? And and again, speaking as a black man, yes, I am talking about people of color. But I'm gonna also say, because this is also who I am and it reflects in my work, I'm a I'm a man of the world. I'm a very universal kind of person. And for me, in order for the world to benefit, we need to have more respect for everyone. Those people who earn our respect deserve our respect, period. And subsequently, then we can expect respect. We can demand it because that's what we give. So I think ultimately it's on me to do my best and hopefully my my kids will turn around and say, okay, dad, we got it from here. It all just starts with you. At the end of the day, all you can really control is, you know, your actions and, you know, how you treat others. Absolutely. Absolutely. Everything out is, you know, every, if, if, if somebody reacts to that, that's on them. You know, yeah. you didn't, it was nice to you. <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I, I, I love that mindset. And uh, it, it goes to show why you've had such a long, you know, an illustrious career of, of so many, because uh, you're a fiction author in, in, in so many different mediums. Uh, as a writer, how did you get your start? Was it in books? Was it in comics? Was it plays? Like, what was the first... Uh, platform that gave you uh, traction? If if you mean professionally speaking, I guess I would have to say um, probably some magazine articles sort of was the first step, you know, that first toe in the water. Um, mm. Back in the days when I can't even remember the, the publisher now, I think it was Cadence, owned Marvel. And there was, uh, I knew Marvel writers uh, up there, like Don McGregor and, and Mark Wolfman and people. I was a teenager, but they were already working at Marvel because yes, they're older than I am. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and I would go up there. So something happened and there was an editor up there who knew I was writing stuff and had seen something I'd written, I think through Don or whatever. So he said, well, you know, we're, we're starting this music magazine and I know that you hang out with some bands and things like that. I'm not as a player, but you know, as a, as a sort of a, a friend, <laughs> maybe a roadie. And he said, you know, would you be able to interview a couple of people for this particular article? And I did. And I wrote something. I, I honestly could can't find it, so I don't know how good it was, but they used it. And then came another assignment, another assignment. And then finally, uh, it was an opportunity to interview, oh, uh, it was a jazz drummer first, but then finally um, I interviewed Melba Moore. And, I mean, for anybody who doesn't know, Melba Moore is like the Diana Ross, uh, you know, it's another that realm, that, that era. Uh, she's quite a singer, quite beautiful, quite talented and all that and she was doing a concert in philadelphia and they actually sent me to philly to interview her after the concert and you know up until this point well it was it was kind of fun you know doing these mm-hmm. things where i wasn't thinking about it professionally and then after the concert i you know with my notepad and everything this is pre-digital stuff right in terms of having your phone that can do everything so I yeah. notepad and i'm saying well you know i know you're going to be going back to new york soon so maybe if we could sit down for a little while and she goes no, no, come, come, come with me. And so she and her manager 
took me through the back of the stage, went into an alley, I mean, which is strange. You know, Melba Moore and her manager leading me into an alley. You know, this is <laughs> But there's a limo waiting, and the limo is uh-huh. to drive them back to New York, and she says, get in. And so, yeah, so I did my half of my interview with her in a limo, driving back to New York City, right? And I'm yeah. okay, I can get into this. There's <laughs> 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 some possibilities here. Yeah. <laughs> interviewing celebrities and limos and things. Yeah, all right. <laughs> so this is that got me going in terms of writing some articles and and then just slowly things began to I was I was an actor, I was pursuing acting in my early twenties, and there was not a lot of solid material for black actors unless it was either slave stories. Mm-hmm. Or angry black man, Irving, uh, right? So that was it. You, you were you were angry and beaten as a slave, or you were angry and beaten the crap out of people as as a man on on Harlem streets, right? Oh, okay. So this is like the seventies, like the black exploitation. Yeah, yeah. That's that like that. period. That's a period. So yeah. you had ain't supposed to die a natural death, and you had um, uh, some other Melvin Van Peebles hits that were big on Broadway, but then you also had Slaughter's Big Rip Off. You know, a shaft in Africa. You had something yeah. in between, across 110th Street. And I, I'm saying, you know, gee, I seem to know a lot more people of color that aren't doing either of these things. You know, wow. I love Sounders. It was a good movie. I enjoyed the original Shaft. But, you know, there's all this stuff in between. And so I started writing material for me to audition with. And then that led to me actually writing a couple of plays and short things. And then I wrote a Sherlock Holmes play. And, and I combined Ira Aldridge, who was an actual black actor who lived in the 1800s, mm-hmm. went from the United States to England, became this continental success. Long story, but look it up, Ira Aldridge. And I combined what happened to him and his family with Sherlock Holmes. And that was a play of mine that, that was one of the first plays of mine that got an off-Broadway production. And it was so really that was, uh, What was it called? Sherlock Holmes and the hands of Othello. And the hands of, of Othello. Yeah. Okay. Because yeah. I, I was doing research on you. I came across the the, the excerpt in the New York Times. Yeah. So. Well, yeah. Hmm, you know. And it's it's what's weird is there was a Sherlock Holmes play on Broadway starring Frank Langella, hmm. and we got better reviews. <laughs> so, so I'm going like, okay, how'd that happen? Right. But um, I I guess I would just say that, you know, that was that was sort of the beginning of me really pursuing more writing as a profession than performing as a profession. I began to explore because I really I knew there were more stories to be told and I wasn't seeing them. And it was my way of sort of adding to the diaspora. Wow. So you started as a magazine short story writer and then that pivoted into interviews for magazines and then that pivoted into writing plays for off-broadway plays yeah off 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 oh. broadway off 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 that is such a uh, strange um but it seems like it makes it seems like the blocks connect when you look back on it but like it seems when you were going through it, it kind of felt like where am i doing you know did it kind of feel like that you know it, the, the thing of it is and and yeah it, i think if you're if you're hovering above watching me do this through time yeah. so what is that guy doing Where's he? Does anybody got a map? You know, I I think that would be your impression. But what was going on in my head was, oh, I, you know, I got, I got this idea. Oh, wait a minute, I've got Mm -hmm. this idea here. Okay, so I finished that. Oh, here's another idea. And what was happening for me were stories 
and ideas were coming to me and more often dictating what medium they wanted to be born into. Mm. So because I was influenced by so many mediums and because let's go back to mom for a moment. She never told me you can only do one thing. You can't do this. You can't do that. I'm mm-hmm. thinking, oh, this would make a great book. Oh, this would make a great play. Oh, a comic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, and that was it. That was it. I was, I was, I still am a big kid, actually. Um, I think if you, if you look at children, there you go. Perfect analogy. Look at children in a playground, happy children mm-hmm. running around the playground from this thing to that thing, to this group, to that group, to back to their parents to get a refreshing drink or something. Off they go again. It's because you're, you're constantly pumped and inspired. And, mm-hmm. and there are all kinds of possibilities. And you want to see this and you want to do that. And I think that's, again, a part of the creative mindset. We can step outside into the hallway. We can exit a building construct and go running through the woods and find something that fascinates us and build something out of that or bring it back to share with. You know, these are metaphors. But the reality is we we sort of embrace life in a certain way that says there's so many stories I want to tell. And sometimes we choose one medium and sometimes we explore several. So I, I explore several. I, I actually kind of want to touch on that because you do so many things, you know, you consult, you write comics, books, plays, run workshops, act, voice act, like where does all this creative energy come from? And then how do you choose what to focus on? Yeah. If I, if I could have answered that one sooner, I might be really, really wealthy by now. Um, <laughs> I can only, the first half of that question, I think it was, where does it come from? Uh, yeah, where does the creative energy come from? I think, I think well, there's a couple ways of looking at that. Uh, I am not a religious man, but I am what I feel is a spiritual person. So I feel like somehow, some way, this is what I was meant to be. Uh, I feel, I've always felt this way. I've, I've, I've had times when people have tried to steer me in another direction, beat it out of me, put me down, whatever, whatever, whatever. And, you know, sometimes I've gone down, you know, I've not, I've been knocked down and tried to just lead what was considered a normal life. But in reality, that's not what I was put here for. And I think that again, maybe it goes back to mom. Maybe it goes back to just something that's wrong with how my head works, but I love it anyway. But, you know, the reality is I see possibilities and I don't initially go, that's impossible. I don't initially go, I don't have the money to do this or people won't like it or the the man this. And none of that really leaps out as a first thought. And over time, over years and years and years of doing this, my first thought is not how, you know, it's, it's not can this be done? It's how can this be done? You know, if if you don't have a hundred thousand dollar budget, can you do it on a buck ninety five? Is there any way mm. to pull this off? You know, that's where my head goes. It looks, it sort of circles it and says, "Okay, how can we approach this?" And yeah, there are times when I can't. There's something I can't do. You know, that's that's real. But you know, if you'd said to me thirty years ago that you would have come up with a an event for kids and family that would last fourteen years on a shoestring budget, I would have gone, "Really." And I may not have seen it in my head 30 years ago, but I would have gone, oh, all right, if you say so. Yeah, but one day I did. And 14 years later, here we are with the Kids Comic Con. You know, if you said to me that I would, ha- I went to see in 1963 or 64, I went to see the first James Bond movie, Dr. No. 
And then a year or two later, whenever it came out, I saw, you know, From Russia With Love. And when I saw it from Russia with love, I thought, oh, wow, it'd be cool to go to Russia and see this stuff and do it. And there were, I don't think it was a black person in from Russia with love. There were some of us in the, in the islands, in the islands, man, in the <laughs> right? Because, hey, you know, you can't shoot around us. There's so many. But yeah. I'm thinking in my head as a kid, as a t- young teenager, oh, yeah, I'd like to go to Russia and see that. If you had said to me right then and there, you know what? One day you'll not only go to Russia. But the American embassy will fly you there. The State Department, rather, will fly you there. And they will arrange for you to speak in two different cities. I would go, yeah, stop. Come on, really. What am I going to talk about? <laughs> yeah. Come on. Stop. What am I talking about? Yeah. Right. Come on. Stop. Don't, don't mess with me like that. Sure enough, I did. Two, two, three years ago? Yeah, 2017. I went back twice. Sponsored. Spoke. In two countries the first time. Two cities the first time. And five cities the second time. All on creative writing. And at one point, I stood in a room in Moscow, surrounded by probably about 100 and some odd people. I w- and, and I was introduced and asked to speak just briefly to the gathering. And I was introduced as the American. And I'm thinking, what, what's that about? And I realized, out of all the people, it was an international gathering. Out of all the people there, I was the American. I was the only American in the room. So when I stepped up to speak, I didn't just represent myself. You I didn't represent represent all of us. Americans. I represented America. Yeah. Again, had you said that to me years ago? (gasps) (laughs) (laughs) But there you are. So the energy is in me. Why it's there, how it's there, people, depending on what you believe, will speculate on it. But it is there. And I think I work very hard to try and fan that fire in, in a lot of young people I work with that I've taught or that I mentor or whatever, because I really believe, I really do believe it's in a lot more of us, but it gets, it gets smothered. Yeah. Growing up, I think it gets stomped out, you know, with a lot of sometimes very well-meaning people going, sweetheart, uh, you got to be realistic. No, I don't. No, I don't. If I can imagine it's possible, then your job is to help me figure out how to make it possible. You know, if you want me to be real, okay, I want to be able to, to, to produce a huge film one day. How do I build towards that? Don't tell me that's not likely. Tell me, what do I have to learn in order to make that possible? You know, if I have weird ideas, don't tell me, well, your mind's messed up. Ask me, how do I come up with these ideas? How do I see it? And help me figure out what to do with it so that it works for me. You know, I think that's part of it is, is giving young people giving children and teenagers permission not to be fools, not to be idiots, not to be destructive. I'm not saying that, but to be creative, to think outside the box, to explore creative possibilities, even if that's not what you want to do professionally. Because if you think about a Fortune 500 companies, hire people who can think outside the box to solve business problems. Well, what's a creative Somebody who tends to think outside the box. Man, it, it's so much stuff to unpack with everything you just said. I mean, it really is. I mean, that's like a that's a it's a masterclass of like five topics in what you just said. You know, the thinking, connecting, yeah, connecting with the youth, like all of it. It's it's beautiful, you know. And thank you. As I was as I was going through your work, you know, I, I when when I initially approached you, I was like excited because I read that you wrote for Batman. It's like my favorite superhero ever. Um, and you know, you wrote for you, 
Yo, really? Okay. Yeah. All right. It's cool. So you wrote the DC published Batman series, uh, Batman Orpheus uh, Rising. Can you walk me through the process of writing for a company like DC? Yeah, you know, you take out insurance and uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, you talk to HR. <laughs> yeah, really. You know, I'm going in. You don't hear from me in two days. You know. Uh, okay, so the process. Let me let me talk about the process from a clinical standpoint. Uh, mm-hmm. DC, huge company. You know, major, major iconic characters making crazy money and owned by Warner Brothers at the time and still still are. Um, so what, what had happened was I had been introduced to them, some of the writers in my earlier years, my youthful years, as a fan. You know, you went to cons and you, you met people. So by the time <clears throat> I was in my late 20s, I had met and talked to Dick Giordano. And I had met a couple of the other people that worked at DC, as well as one or two people who worked at Marvel. And I had come up with the idea for, um, for Blackjack and this is another story. I've written mm-hmm. and, and actually published some original Blackjack stories, which got me a lot of industry attention. And so Joe Illich, um, who was an associate editor at DC at the time, working with um, Denny O'Neill, who was a senior editor, uh, Joe had knew my Blackjack work and introduced it to Denny. And they were looking for someone to write, or to actually to create and write uh, a new Black hero into the Batman universe. Mm -hmm. So Joe got Denny to call me in and um, I went in and it was a great meeting. I mean, I, (laughs) I had met Denny (laughs) some years before when he first started with DC and he turned down blackjack. So it was kind of funny being being back in his office a few years later going, you, you want me this time. Okay. (laughs) I just want to check before I sit down. I just want to make sure. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, the first thing was we talked about the idea of what kind of hero, you know, what, what were my visions, my thoughts, what did they want? What were their goals for this character? And what were the limitations? Because for, for me, one of the things that I remember talking sort of aggressively about, not in, a, not in an unprofessional way, but just being really clear about, is I did not want this character in his civvy identity to be an ex-con, to be a social worker, uh, to be living in the ghetto. You know, what I said, we, we are constantly doing that. You know, um, his parents, you know, didn't raise him. You know, that's, that's, that's a stereotypical story that's constantly being told. So I said, that do not want to go in that direction at all. That's the first thing. And Joe was, was down with it. And Denny didn't find it either. It was, you know, well, where would you go? How would you work with this? So after the conversation, they gave me, you know, a couple of weeks to run away and come back with a pitch, a solid mm-hmm. pitch, <clears throat> how I saw the character, what I was going for. And I think, you know, I, I don't know if they, if they were, you know, thinking like, let's, let's humor the guy. Um, we like a lot of what he's coming up with. These, these couple of things here, we'll, we'll, we'll let it slide, but we'll see what the hierarchy says. But I came back with a character who was raised by two parents, working parents. Uh, one was at a, an executive position, not an executive, but a, a managerial position at a broadcast center, and the other mm-hmm. one was an educator. Um, and they loved him, and there was, you know, they had a middle class existence. Uh, <clears throat> he had he had the arts in him. He was talented in certain things. He was curious about things. He wanted to be a performer when he grew up. He wanted to travel the world. You know, so you pull a little bit from myself 
You know, in some of my experiences, I'd worked at CBS Broadcast Center, so I knew a lot of behind the stuff there. So I worked for the dad part of this. And so I pitched these things to them, and they, they went for it. And, I, yeah, I was surprised, but, you know, I was pleased. And then they said, you know, okay, so I'm thinking this is going to be like a two-parter, three max. And they said, well, you know, you've got a lot happening here. How do you see this and how do you see that? It's, well, I really see it this, this, and this. And by the time we finished the conversation, it was a five-part miniseries. Which again shocked the bejeebers out of me, you know, because I'm yeah. I'm not um, what I considered, you know, if you look at the marketing, I'm not a big name in the industry at all. That's mm-hmm. just not who I was at that time. So I was very pleased, very thrilled, and very surprised that they gave me that much space. So then I went and I did my homework, and it brought in Russian mob, and it brought in urban environment, and I really, I sort of DC had done a big Batman maxi series story that involved no man's land. Uh, you know, and sort of you explored more of Gotham and more of the neighborhoods of Gotham. So I pulled some of that in and I wanted Orpheus, who is, you know, a black character. I wanted at first him to be a question mark. I wanted, you know, because Batman was certainly not going to go, oh, welcome to Gotham. Let me show you around. That wasn't going to happen. <laughs> nah. And I thought, well, what if the police also don't want him? And then what if this and what if that? And so I started playing the what if game. And that's how I came up with the fact that his 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 appearance in Gotham um, is in, as a criminal element. And then things began to open up and discoveries are made and people are pulled into more and more of a confusing situation about who is this guy? What is he about? He seems to be with these people. But he's not with. I, I don't understand. And in the middle of all that, there's a gang war escalating and a potential racial riot. And how does he how does he fit into all this? And I really had a really good time with it. Uh, unfortunately, I think by the time I finished the series, Denny had retired or moved oh. on. So I and Joe had left. Um, so I got to finish the series. I don't know if the series. I can honestly say I do not know how DC actually responded to the series as a company. I do know that. I was mobbed at cons. Really? Yeah. I had a lot of people, black and white, who loved what I did with that. And that is so cool. Even to the point of a year ago at a small con in Westchester, New York, someone came up to me and said, I read this shit. Oh, man. And he's going, (laughs) and he remembered lines from it. Yeah. So I'm saying, okay, okay. Wow. I guess I did my job, you know. That is such a hard uh, nut to crack with Batman because you've had so many writers give their take on it. And I think he, I think Batman's been a zombie at this point. Oh, he's like, been everything, but he's been everything. He hasn't you know? been president. I think that's the only. He hasn't been. <laughs> he left that one to Superman or something. Yeah, but I, I, I like how you did that. It's kind of a refreshing take to, uh, to 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 Batman as you focused on, I guess, the villainous aspect of the story and then what that what problems would that bring to Batman? Cause you know, there's really no situation you could bring to Batman. He kind of hasn't already seen that we haven't seen in the yeah. movie, the books, the animated series. I think there's like 15 different versions of the animated series. So yeah. it's like you, that was a really smart way, really ingenious way actually to, to uh, bring a new problem. The Batman was to focus so heavily on the villain. That's not Joker. And, uh, kind of come up with somebody new. That was yeah, really cool. and I, I think, you know, again, I use that rule in, in a lot of what I do. When I teach writing, which I, I, I teach screenwriting at the New York Film Academy, I have my own online um, service that I do as a writing coach and consultant. 
I do this is when I teach my my students, I always say, you know, you're, you people don't follow special effects. I mean, for the, the mass mass audience does not sit in the movie theater to watch things blow up. That's a piece of it, but that's not what compels them to stay with the story. What compels them to stay with the story are the characters. They go on the journey with the characters, whether they hate them or love them. That's who they're following. And oh yeah, buildings are blowing up and things are sinking, and that's cool. Or there's love in the air or whatever. But it's the characters. And so yeah. you've got to know your characters. You've got to spend some time creating those characters. And especially when you're dealing with iconic characters, as you said, you know, Batman's 1938, 39. What yeah. story hasn't been done with this man yet, right? You know? Yeah, exactly. So, yeah. So the reality is, what can you bring to the table that might be fresh? Well, the new characters and their story and their background, their conflicts with him. Okay, now I might be able to lay something on the table that hasn't been seen that much or hasn't been seen at all. And, you know, in terms of creating a new hero for the Batman universe, and you have people read the book if you want to find out how that all works out. Uh, <laughs> in terms of doing that, you know, Orpheus had to have some mystery to him. And there had to be some conflicts between him and B Man. And there had to be conflicts even greater than theirs in order to make the story build somewhere. And so it's really a story that's based around characters in this incredible situation. And the situation keeps escalating. And that's that's really where I go, because it helps me figure out what they're saying, why they're doing what they're doing, and how what the outcome might be. I... I think that is it, the 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 whole breakdown of the story that you told me about, like how you got your book. Well, not not, not the book, but how you got the the job with DC was it started with you working on Black Jack, and then they turned you down for that pitch. So that you went ahead and just kind of published that independently. Um, so did that set you up to land bigger jobs with these big companies like DC? Like, how does a writer prep himself or herself to, to freelance and land these big jobs? You know, the, the funny thing is, I'm, I'm sure there's a hundred different stories about how people got where they got um, mm -hmm. with these companies. But I mean, part of it is be prepared. So being prepared is, you know, going to be a scout. You know, the, the reality is, is if you want to be a writer and you want to be hired by these people, do writing. Do a whole bunch of writing. Get better and better and better and better at it. Illustrators, same thing. Do that because when the door opens, even a crack, you better be ready to roll in there with your best shot. And mm. what happened with me was, yeah, I'd been writing a lot. And like I said, that kid running through the woods, going, oh, this way, this way, that way. <laughs> a lot of writing. I had always known people in comics or always loved the medium myself, but it was never in my early days did I think, oh, I'm going to grow up and be a great comic book writer. Uh, if anything, because I drew, you know, I was, I was into drawing a lot. I thought maybe one day I'd illustrate comics, um, but I didn't pursue drawing to my satisfaction enough to pursue that. But ultimately, when the door opened at DC, when, you know, when someone said, come here, we, we, we want to talk to you. Yeah, it was after I'd been rejected by them. It was after years of knowing like Dennis Cowan and a few other people and, and, and Neil Adams and all these great people who were in the business, but they didn't say, hold the door open for Alex. It was doing blackjack. And then people seeing that I did blackjack, liking what I did with it and getting curious enough about me to go, I wonder what he would do with. And that door opened. I did a two part Superman story that never got published. The first the first uh, book was fully illustrated, and it never got published. And and I have mixed feelings about 
why I think it didn't get published. I will never behind closed doors know the truth. But mm-hmm. um, it was also kind of a tricky situation in that if anybody's followed Superman over the years, you know that at one point he's married to Lois Lane. Lois has a sister named Lucy. And at one point, Lucy was married to a black reporter at the Daily Planet. And this happened a year before I was given an opportunity to write a Superman story, but they wanted me to use him. So I said, fine, let me look at where he's gone. And the summer just before I took the job, they'd done a big story about an uh, an alien invasion to Earth, and all the Justice League had gotten captured except for Batman. And it's it's the series where I think the aliens have Superman and he says something to one of them, like, you know, have they got Batman? And they said, no, but, you know, he's the last one. No problem. In effect, he says, no, he's the most dangerous of all of us. That's that's that storyline. Well, this reporter, this black reporter and his wife and baby had been captured by the aliens and he'd been probed in that story. So my story, I went, hmm. I can use that because if you think about it, that's traumatic. Your family's been captured. You've been put through hell. We got war stories, real life war stories about that kind of thing. We know what kind of scars that leaves. So my story opened up with this reporter taking unreal, dangerous, horrible chances to get this story on the street when intergang with these super weapons are blowing stuff apart and he's running into the danger. They go, what the heck is wrong with you? Even a a reporter who's with him, the the photographer who's with him, is like, you're crazy. What are you doing? And everybody, Lois, Clark, everybody's talking, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? And what the story eventually shows in just the first issue is that basically he felt helpless when his family was taken. He couldn't save, they didn't die, but he couldn't protect his wife. He couldn't protect his child. He felt like maybe I'm, I'm not a man. Maybe I'm not this. Maybe I'm not that. And some, you know, twisted effort to prove to himself that he's not a coward, he was now doing all these outrageous things, leading him into more and more dangerous scenarios, which eventually winds up with a cliffhanger at the end of book one. And I had a great time with that story. I finished the the script. I was really proud of it. And then it never went beyond pencil and ink for the first book. This episode is brought to you by our good friends over at Sock Season. I have a pair of their unisex essential star quality socks and man, they are comfortable. They truly are. They, they, they come in like weird, funky, cool colors. And I'm not just saying this because they paid me. I'm saying it because I'm a big sock guy and I hate socks that fall apart after a few washes or they're cheap, or they're they're tight around the toe, or they hurt around the ankle. I've experienced a lot of different socks, and a lot of these companies are cutting corners. I've gotten socks from H&M, different department stores, and quite frankly, I feel like I've gotten beaten a lot of times because I no longer wear the socks. And after a few washes, they either rip, or they shrink, or I lose a pair, or I lose one of the socks. Those two are on me. But sometimes they're warped and they just lose their shape. But the cool thing about Sock Season is Sock Season has a unique 30-day wash guarantee, which covers socks bought within the first 30 days. Like if you buy them and they fall apart within the first 30 days, they will replace them. No questions asked, which is crazy, but that's how much they believe in their socks. So go to www 
thatsockseason.com. S-O-C-K-S-E-A-S-O-N.com. Use coupon code OFFSTAGE for 25% off your first order and tell them Jordan sent you because every day is sock season. That sounds oh my god, it sounds so good. <laughs> I like, want to read it because it's a bit it, with Superman. What what reason why I don't connect with him that much is because he's such uh, he's bland. I'm just being real. Like to me, he's kind of bland. Like he's very like you know truth, liberty, justice. I'm like okay, man, you have all the power in the world. Like you can shoot you know, somebody pisses you off, you can shoot laser in their brain, cook their brain. Like you know, like I wouldn't be a goody two shoes, and then like. It's just nothing. It's no special sauce to him to me. Like even the the stories when they dig deep, it always has to be like an outside force to make the story kind of interesting for Superman to play around with. And he kind of has no like um, limitations other than well, kryptonite. You know the thing. The thing I say about that is thank goodness that that side of him does exist because there are all the alternative sides, and none uh-huh. of them work out well for us. Yeah, yeah <laughs> you know, that's so true. Really? Yeah. You know, it really doesn't. And here's the other thing I'll say about that. And I'm not knocking you for it. I mm-hmm. I get your POV, absolutely. But I think about it, um, pardon the metaphor here, but yeah. there are people who have intense power in our lives right now, life and death power, who cross the line repeatedly. Okay? And there's a lot of human beings suffering for that. So do I really, really want nothing but iconic characters who also cross the line? Or can, oh, do that's I really, a good point. Do I really need at least one or two out of 480 possibles who goes, no, you don't. You've got to understand, as everybody loves to quote the Spider-Man line, with great power comes great responsibility. See, well, you, you're, okay, that is brilliant. Because you've published and you see the um, effect it has. Like, you know you know that there's a ripple effect beyond writing this. Like, you know a kid's going to consume this, and then he's going to build his moral compass around a comic book you wrote 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, but me, in my head, I'm just thinking I'm consuming it right now with my thoughts. Like, yeah. I don't really think that deep. I don't yeah, you know my thoughts. You do. It's not that deep. I would say, yeah. I would, I would say that, that there, and again, you know, folks here, like, you know, please don't, don't write in hate mail for me now. Right. <laughs> but, but here's, here's the thing. Um, Gil Scott Herring used to say, you know, the revolution will not be televised. Okay. There was, there was a, one of those popular phrases, like quoting Malcolm, you know, by mm-hmm. any means necessary. Yeah. What does that mean? What is, what's behind the words? Are the words meant to depress us or inspire us? And if you're to inspire us, then there are actions that, that come of that. Ultimately, the darker things get, and that's using dark as a negative. So let's just put the worse things get, the harder it is for us to conceive of better, of even working towards better. You know, mm-hmm. people quit. And I get it. I understand it. I don't know what my, my tolerance line is, but, you know, someday I may go, okay, the hell with it. It's, it's all gone to hell in a handbasket. Just bring it. Just shoot me. But I'm not there yet at my age. I'm not there yet. And, you know, if anything, let's go back to mom for a moment. Let's go back to the people that raise us. Mm-hmm. Um, all the hell she went through, she didn't quit. Why would I? You know, legally blind, deaf, Immobile after a certain point in her life, 
She's in a wheelchair. And she tried to go around and visit people in rooms who couldn't get out of their beds. So to me, it's about, you said moral compass, yeah, but it's also about how do I keep me empowered so that I don't give up all of my power? Sure, they're going to take some of it, absolutely, but I don't want to give up all of my power. I don't want to believe that I can't affect something. I don't want to believe that there's no possibilities, there's no hope. I don't want to believe that. Now, if life is going to teach me that eh, you're wrong, then teach me. But you ain't taught it to me yet. And there's a whole bunch of people out there across the planet that they're not drinking that Kool-Aid. You know, and it's just a matter of how you want to look at things. I again, going back to soup. Yeah. White God. Wow. OK, <laughs> yeah, I got that. And, and, and even, you know, with respects to the creators of the character, what is he? He's the ultimate alien. What was he? Cre- who, who created him? Two young boys of Jewish immigrant families. What do we call people from another country who come here? Aliens, immigrants, whatever. OK, so they created the ultimate alien who wants to live to be a good American the way probably the mindset was in their families when they came here to be good citizens and to make our way in the world and be a part of this culture. I get all that. So this, so Superman is like, I never, okay. So it's like hidden propaganda in a sense. This hidden propaganda, this hidden human storyline. The reality is we are inspired by the things that influence us. Hmm. You know, with with the, the movement of more black stories being told, more stories being told by women, more stories being told by people with alternate lifestyles, they're going to bring their influences to the table. Sometimes it's going to in, 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 in just in, 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 in inflame other people, and sometimes it's going to inspire other people. But that's their story. That is that truth. And we can accept it or not, but it doesn't make it non-existent, you know? They were influenced by the people that raised them and the lives they led before. And then a corporation took over the character and have made gazillions of dollars from it. And that Mm -hmm. iconic character has influenced billions of people. Archie has influenced billions of people over, what is it, uh, 75 years or 73 years? Mm -hmm. You know, Archie is Americana. Yeah, it really is. You know, and I've written Archie. And when people look at Archie, I don't think they think me. Some do, but (laughs) not a large mouth, you know. (laughs) But when I got my chance to write Archie, I didn't write the way, you know, the the guys in the 1950s or 40s wrote Archie. I didn't use the same type of characters they did even in the 50s and 60s and 70s. They gave me Chuck, uh, I think I got one of them here. Yes, here we go. I did um, um, a mini series about Chuck Clayton. Right. This is this is Chuck. I know you don't have visuals, folks, but you know, bear with me. I'm holding up a comic book, an Archie comic called The Cartoon Life of Chuck Clayton. Chuck Clayton is a black character that they created in the 70s. He was Coach Clayton, who'd been around already. He was uh, Coach Clayton's son. So we assume there was a wife. Maybe she popped up once or twice. But Chuck would pop up every now and then. Chuck was the go to guy who drew comics and stuff like that. He would be Archie was was the, the company would produce eight page stories, four page stories, occasionally 12 page stories. And 99 percent of them were white characters. But every now and then Chuck would pop up. That's from the 70s forward. 2006 or so. I'm up there at the company looking for work as a writer. 
in common. Mm-hmm. I, I grew up reading Archie, so I knew the character fairly well. And I get called into the boardroom by uh, the then editor. He's now a VP there, but by the editor. And then a distributor for the company and then another editor. Uh, I was one of the oldest editor on the planet at the time. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, I won't say his name because I, I, I will. Respect, bro. Respect. I got you. Um, <laughs> and then one of the company owners. And suddenly I'm, I'm, I just went up for a job writing. And I'm suddenly mm-hmm. in a boardroom with like five or six guys who run the company. And the thing that was said to me was asked very nicely, you know, was why do people think of Archie as white bread? And, you know, so different. Yeah. yeah, yeah you asked. Were they serious? Like they, they know? Or they, they, were, they didn't know? Or? Yeah, they oh, were serious. Yeah. Now, here's one of those moments. You know, any number of people I know, people of color or black men who could have been in that seat would have handled it totally differently than I did. You know, mm-hmm. right or wrong, just would have handled it differently. But I heard that question. I realized he's actually serious. I'm surrounded <laughs> by all this Archie material, memorabilia, racks of comics, and there's nothing but white faces all around me. And I said, do you really, really want me to answer that? And he says, no, seriously, seriously. And the editor who brought me in thought, yeah, please. And I could tell, okay, you've wanted this conversation. I don't know if you know how yeah. it's going to come out. You probably have no idea. But you've actually wanted this. So maybe you brought this up. Okay. And so I said, well, why do you think it isn't? And they said, well, you know, we've got Raj, which is an East Indian character. And they named the Japanese character they had. And I think he named the Chinese character. And I said, so you have one of each? He said, well, no, you know, they have their families. <laughs> and I said, well, let me do it this way. And I pulled down a bunch of the books and I just opened to random pages. And I said, if you look at this, first off, your lead characters are all white, all six of them. Okay. okay, that's that's how you started out. So, but then look at these pages. Look at the backgrounds, even the lunchroom scenes. I don't see Raj anywhere. I don't see this other character anywhere. I don't see any people of color. And even the background scenes, they're walking along the streets when they're in the school. You don't see them. And you, you, know, you see them looking at each other like they hadn't thought about it that way. I said, if you don't see the world in all its diversity... You don't represent it. Subsequently, what you represent is white bread. But um, what about, I said, is there a community in Riverdale that has East Indian people living there or black people living? I mean, or is Riverdale just homogenized or, you know, what you tell me. Yeah. Again, you can see them going uh, and that that one editor going, mm hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's white, too. So, I mean, he's, mm-hmm. right. so out of that conversation came a whole bunch of work, <laughs> <You know? laughs> a whole bunch of work. And just in case people are thinking, oh, so they gave you the black character, right? Yeah, they gave me Chuck, but they also gave me everybody else. So the very first. Wow. Project, so they let you build out the whole world. They, well, they let me even play with their toys. So the first series I got to do, the first, you know, uh, really big project was a, um, um, it was a five book miniseries called Archie's World Tour, where I got to take all the regs and take them out of Riverdale on a, on a class trip to Europe and Africa. And I added some mystery and adventure in there as well. But I got to play with the characters, even Moose. I took him to another level because, you know, yeah, you can keep playing the same tune. You're dumb jock, dumb jock, dumb jock. What if you have a reading disability? What if you're oh, aware man. that people think of you as this big lug, you know, who's got nothing going on for him? Well, then why does Midge like you? 
Midge is not some cheerleading, you know, airhead. So what is it she sees that makes you okay? There must be something about you that we're not seeing. And so I went there. And that's that's the thing. So you it goes back to what I said about characters. Your mm-hmm. stories are really in your characters. They're really in that what if. There's really in that doing a 360 of a character and getting to know him or her better so that you know, okay, what story can I tell with this person? And yeah, I got to do the Chuck Clayton thing. I got to do several stories. I even got to do a mystery series with Jughead, which was like a four-issue miniseries. That was fun. I had a great time with that. And again, could bring in diversity as I wanted. I didn't make it about yeah. diversity, but I could play. And that's that's where the joy is for me, is I don't get tripped up on, oh, it's never been done before, or it's not necessarily allowed. You know, if you if you give me the key to the house, I'm going in. I love that. If you give me the key to the house, I'm going in. So when you sit down and you start to crack, like, let's just use the Archie example. When you sit down to crack a story about that, how much world building uh, takes place before you start writing? Is it is it you figure out the character uh, angle or do you figure out the world and then figure out how you want to fit the characters in it? Like what, what comes first for you? I think a lot of it depends on what I'm working on. Archie came with his own world, mm-hmm. so I explored it. I looked at the characters. I looked at the town. Like I said, even asking, is there an area in Riverdale that's predominantly Italian or black or whatever? Because it's never mentioned. So mm-hmm. I even looked at the possibilities. Okay, so what is this world I'm in? So if I have, if I didn't create the world, I'm going to explore the world so I know what I did. With Batman, same thing. I got, uh, they had gave me a huge series Bible on Batman. And I looked at that. I looked at some of the back issues and stories I had read and said, what are the neighborhoods I would deal with? You know, and I'm going to be bringing it because I had an idea for a story. Mm-hmm. What's, what's the adver- adversarial situation? Where would they be? What's, what's the, 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 um, the apex where, where two or three neighborhoods converge on each other? Cause we have that here in New York. So where would that be in Gotham? Cause then I can work this and that into it. So you explore the world, right? You explore the characters. Even if you're creating the characters, you don't know them yet. It's like you're being introduced to somebody for the first time. All right, so you're tall. You seem to be strong, athletic, okay? Um, you seem to have a bit of an attitude. Okay, so the more I, time I spend with you, the more I get to know where that's coming from. And that's the same thing with creating characters. You start out with an impression of them. Mm-hmm. And then you have to explore them to see where they're coming from. I tell my students that unless a character is born in your story and dies in your story, they come into your story with a life prior and they're going somewhere when they leave. And if you know where they're coming from before the story starts, and if you know where they're going just as the story is ending, that informs, that informs and impacts on what you say within the story. So knowing the history of some of my characters, what what happened to them, why they do what they do, what they believe, what they feel, what they love, what they hate, what they fear, those things inform how they will react within the story I'm trying to tell. Like Batman um, Orpheus Rising opens up as a series of montage shots, if you will, and, and ca- captions to go with it that identify uh, several cop shootings. And, you know, okay, you could, you could have several different cops get shot and just point talk about when the bullet hit or what time of day it was or 
you know, how it happened when it impacted and they fell and people came around. But I also wanted to feel like I knew something about these people as they got hit. Why? Because for that faint moment in time, I wanted them to be human beings in a blue uniform about to get killed. Just to elicit some connection. It's not like target practice, although it is for somebody, but Mm -hmm. that's not what I'm saying with this story. So one of them is a black cop who's coming down the stairs of the building, municipal building, and he's thinking about the fact that he and his wife had just been turned down for an apartment they wanted because they were the wrong color. Uh, Another one is a police officer, a woman, policewoman, who's about to give out a traffic ticket in sort of like the, the Fulton Street area of, of, of you know, a marketplace area of, of Gotham. And she's thinking about her child. And as she gets hit and goes down, realizing she'll never see that child again. You know, uh, these are things, you know, again, do I go into the whole history about where she was born, how she was raised, what her family was like? No, I know some of it. But I pull from what I know about her the key moment I wanted to use in that scene. I I love that you're not just shooting faceless bad guys. You know, I notice sometimes in movies they do that. They'll send the bad guy in and all the bad guys will be wearing helmets. So you have no emotional connection to yeah. them. So he could just like rip their spine out of their body. Yeah. You're like, yeah. Yeah. yeah, you don't think that's it's a real person. Count. It's like a video yeah, game. It's it's a body body count. Count. Yeah. You know, body I, count. I use I use one of the Die Hard movies uh, as an example of that. When the first mm-hmm. Die Hard movie I really enjoyed. I thought there was really subtext and a real story there. It's about a man trying to get his wife back, knows that he blew it. He, mm-hmm. he's, he's out of his league with her. He's a cop. He's good at what he does. You know, he probably came up, you know, sort of a little bit street, um, you know, maybe Italian or whatever. But bottom line, his wife is, she understands a corporate mindset, business, all that. She's, she's, you know, she's wonderful. He wants his wife and his kids back. And he's going to go see what he can do to, to talk to her, maybe get her back because she's moved to California. So when he gets there, that's what's on his mind. The fact yeah. that bad guys hit, you know, hostage situation, shoot him up like crazy. Bruce Willis's character's whole drive is to survive, keep my wife alive, get back to her, get my family together. That's what I'm here for. And I will go. I, through yeah, anybody. that's so true. Yeah, I will go through anybody and anything I have to do. I will bleed to make that happen third movie okay i'm pissed i'm divorced i'm drunk and samuel jackson's cursing at me for 85 minutes (laughs) i i have a theory about those movies like i agree with you the first one he's a lot more grounded and you understand why he's doing it and then as the series go along it's like he's just looking for a reason to kill a lot of people and he's a psychopath he's like this (laughs) yeah yeah, I mean, yeah, but yeah. it's like he's a psychopath, and then the other, the villain is a psychopath, and then they're trying to figure out who's the crazier psychopath, yeah, right. like who could blow yeah. up more stuff, who's the best psycho, who kill more who's the best psycho? is it the American psycho, or is it the Russian psycho, yeah, like, right. an American psycho always wins, like, but yeah. like, yeah, I, I agree with you. Well, and, and, the, and to mention the body count thing is, I literally did count bodies in that mm. movie, because there was nothing else for me to do. I, you know, I like, <laughs> Sam, I like Sam in a lot of films. And as I said, I love Bruce in the first one. I love the story. And I liked the second one. It was about, okay, here we go again. But okay, there was still connection with the wife and all that. So that was, there was still something going on. But this third one, there was nothing going on. And at the moment I saw him at the opening shot, I went, oh, God, he's divorced. I know where this is going. And it did. We're running around New York City shooting people. So here's the thing. I may be wrong by one or two bodies. But if I remember correctly, I counted something like 86 or 87 people were killed. <laughs> and the only reason I think there were more is because at the very beginning of the movie, 
there's a bomb that goes off in a department store and we never get to see inside. So I couldn't count those bodies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You don't know what the body count was on that one. But that's what I'm saying. It becomes this thing where how much destruction can we throw in front of you to keep your your blood pumping or whatever, and character and storytelling really doesn't matter. And then for some franchise, we don't understand why you're not going to see the movies again. We're still killing people. We're still blowing stuff up. We're still racing Mm -hmm. through, you know. It's because I don't care about the characters, and I've seen this before. Uh, yeah. you know, I don't feel any. Fourteen other movies I could go see with the same amount of action and death, but I like the characters, you know, and maybe three of them. So I'll go there. It's that kind of thing. It's like you know, how many more vampires do I want to see? How many more zombies do I want to see? Mm. Show me something different. Shaun of the Dead. Oh, okay, different. Yes, yeah, a different spin, same world. Yeah, like zombie. Right. Apocalypse. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. That was nice. Warm so are these okay, the of, uh, that, but okay, all right, you at least try. <laughs> <laughs> so, so are these the type of things that you uh, teach in your um, course or yes. your writer labs? Yes, yes, and yes. Um, you know, again, some people will say, "Well, you know, you know, you just like the old stuff." I'm saying, "Yeah, I do like some of the old stuff. I like some of the new stuff if it's done right. Mm-hmm. If it's done right." Um, Sherlock. Okay, I grew up reading Sherlock Holmes. I've written Sherlock Holmes. I've seen 101 different movies throughout four or five decades of Sherlock Holmes films with maybe 30 some odd different actors playing him. Yeah. Some of it I hated, some of it was fine. I like Cumberbatch's Sherlock. I like what they do. It's a whole nother take on it. It's fresh. Yeah. It's different. I can enjoy that because it's done well. So I feel and it does it does callbacks to like the original one, the one yeah. from the I think the sixties or whenever it was, the original actor who did the Sherlock TV show. I don't know the British version. Well, okay, you've got a couple of those there, but you know, not not to go Sherlockian on you, but okay, Cumberbatch, <laughs> Cumberbatch is sort of the next version of of Jeremy Britt. Jeremy Britt mm-hmm. did Sherlock in the eighties, also British uh, TV. Uh, he was the most. Oh, that was the eighties. Yeah, he was the oh, quirkiest. Okay. He was the quirkiest of the Sherlock. He was the one who went into that kind of head, and I enjoyed mm-hmm. that. And I enjoy what Cumberbatch does. My favorite Sherlock Holmes, in terms of the other versions of him, would be Rathbone, Basil mm-hmm. Rathbone. I mean, that's who I. I saw the first one I saw, and and then you got so many different actors in between who really. Did an okay job or never should have taken the role, but they did. So what are you going to do? But all I'm saying is I can look at those different versions of the same character. I can look at Star Trek, the original series. I can look at all the incarnations, um, the uh, the various series that they've done. I can even look at the, the movies they did with the original cast. And I can look at the Chris Pine uh, reboot they did. And I can yeah. find things that work or don't work. I happen to like the reboot because they, they they respected the source material, but they said, you know what? We got a new audience to appeal to. So we got to bring something else to the table. And I feel they successfully did. So to me, yeah, the first one, I really enjoyed it because I wasn't um, 
Star Trek, uh, Star Trek fan. I was mm-hmm. more of Star Star Wars fan, and uh, the first one, the first Star Trek movie, the one rebooted one with Chris Pine, I enjoyed. I was yeah. like, oh wow, this is pretty cool, you know. Yeah, so I, you're I, right. I think they lost you somewhere after that, right? <laughs> yeah, it kind of lost me after the second one. It, yeah. it was just too many lens flares, and I just wasn't into <laughs> it. Too many lens flares. Okay, yeah. Um, I have a tin lens flare for movie limit. Like, yeah, what should go be on tin? I'm like, oh, God. <laughs> I can see the review. Too many lens flares. Right? Too many lens flares. Yeah. But, you know, for me, again, it's it's not that I'm lost in the old world. I'm lost in quality. I'm lost in good mm. storytelling. Uh, and that's even when I tell some of my students who I believe, you know, by, by virtue of what they say, I'm not really pursuing being an act, a writer. I want to be a director. I want to be this. I want to be that. But I want to I want to tell good stories. It's great. That makes you a storyteller, and that's absolutely what you should be—a good storyteller. So if you happen to tell your stories through writing or some other form, great. Mm-hmm. Just be good at it. And that's what I ask of, of the material that's coming out now. A lot of the material because we got all these streaming services, so content is king right now. So do it yes. well, please. You just otherwise you just have a thousand more opportunities to regurgitate the same old same old. So please do it well. Do something different. Play. You know, entertain this old fuddy duddy who's still willing to be entertained with something different. I love it. How okay? So you say it all goes back to story, which which is true. But what is like? What's a good foundation for like a writer to understand story? Like, what are some books like, okay, if you digest these books or you break these books down, you will understand the fundamentals of how to tell a good story. You, because you've pretty asked, much every, you know. You've actually asked absolutely the wrong person that question. Um, because <laughs> because that, that's not how my mind works. There are some good books out there, and uh, I'll be happy to send you a list of a few that I would recommend that are not forefront of my, my mind right now. Um, mm-hmm. I do know that in comics in particular, Denny wrote a good book on how to write, you know, good comics. I think that's that's because he was a good storyteller. Denny understood putting human beings into the costumes. So that okay. would be that would be a place I would go. But there, there's some books on screenwriting you know, and, and how to, again, to create good stories and set them up. And I would I'll put a list together for you, maybe like five or six. But here's the OK, I'll put, I'll put them in the show notes. Yeah, here's, I, uh, here's the thing. Um and this is just my opinion. Here's my opinion. You can study good storytelling. You can read how other people did it. But ultimately, it comes down to how you do it. It comes down to you taking from here and from there, and from this teacher and from that book, the little elements that help you put together your voice and, and your style. Um, you, some of us start out imitating people that we admire and we love their work, mm-hmm. but don't stay there. You know, you got, you got to move on. You, you've got to say, what am I about? What do I want to talk about? What, what do I feel? What do I know? What matters to me? Even if you're doing children's books, and I don't say that as a put down because I've done children's books. I think they're great. I think it's important. Um, but I was just listening to a couple of, um, uh, children's book authors who wrote chil- write children's mysteries. One is Hispanic, and two women are African American. And we all talked about Nancy Drew and the Hardy Boys and Encyclopedia Brown, all that stuff that was there when we were growing up. But there weren't us there. 
you know? And so we can love what influenced us, but what's our voice? What do we want to talk about? And if we want to bring that joy that we experienced in following kids who didn't look like us into the story that we tell, okay, fine. What are those qualities? But now what are the qualities of the character and the world that we're building now that's going to reflect us or reflect our people? And so I think once again, it's finding your voice, finding the stories you want to tell and what, and this is hard. This is very hard. I have an exercise in my mystery writing um, uh, boot camp where I have people start out by recalling certain emotions, where they happened at least two times, where they happened and when, and remembering how that felt and then building out from there on a story idea. Because a lot of times people try to write from here. They write cerebral. They don't write from the heart. They don't write from memories of things that were rich in an experience. They write from cool or they write from educated. And that's a textbook. When you're trying to tell a good story, it's how do you feel? What did you smell? What did you hear? You know, what was that person going through at that time? What are the conflicts? How does that make you respond? And that's where the heart is to a good story. And that's how you pull your audience in. They begin to care. Stephen King is remarkable at this. And I think Mosley does something with Easy Rollins, especially in the first book, that resonated with me. Stephen King and Salem's Lot, by the time, and anybody who doesn't know Salem's Lot is about vampires, by the time the vampires start taking lives in this town and taking over, I know this town because he spent a certain amount of time brilliantly introducing me to these common people to the point of when certain people were being killed. I already had a connection to them. I, I kind of knew so much. Oh, and, and there's one in particular, I won't say who, that when this character was, when the vampire was closing in on this character, I actually slammed the book shut. I didn't want to, I did not want to read that scene. That was just, that was it. There was wrong and there's wrong. And then there was that. And that was, that was. <laughs> right. That's where I draw the line. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I, you know, I so you're that guy at the book readings. That's like, you shouldn't have killed that character. Like you're that I, guy. I won't yeah. do that to people because I've had that done to me and it's fun, by the way. It um, is really fun. It, it's fun. Yeah. I've had somebody do that to me when I was an actor. Says, I hated your character so much. I wanted him to kill your child in the story. And I went, thank you. And they looked at me like I was crazy. You know, I did my job, you know? Like, I, I made you feel something. Yeah. yeah. But, but yeah, I'm that guy who feels things. And, you know, I you know, I can enjoy just a plain good fun story. Absolutely. I can get caught up in good drama, good horror, good mystery. You know, it's intriguing. I love the characters. You know, I love characters because that's, that's who counts. That's who keeps me grounded in that story. Otherwise, you know, it's a world. Uh, but like I said, Stephen King, by that time that character came came into danger. I, I didn't want to read it. I, I closed the book. And um, Walter Mosley, you know, easy in this first book, he's not a private detective. He's, he's got a job. He's gotten out. Of, he's got through the war. He's home. You know, he's got his house. Yeah. And his house. He just wants to pay his house note yeah, and um, that's right. work his job. That's, that's it. Right. He just wants to pay his house note. He, he, and the, yeah. the house was important because it was his. He owned it. It was yeah. like his first piece of land. Yeah, he right. felt okay. like a man. He felt okay. like a man. Right. Yeah. Okay, remember, we're talking 1940s, right? Yeah. Okay? 
So that was, it's not like, oh, we put, they put his family in jeopardy and they had his, he didn't, wasn't even married. He didn't have a kid. But that house meant so much more to him. It was yeah. a, a, the rock on which he could stand. That he could go home. Well, I think work. like it was the it was the the only place he could breathe. Yeah, it was the only place he could breathe. So it was it literally like represented life to him because um, he, you know, like and then, everywhere he went, he was considered a boy. He was right. called a boy. And then there's and then, community yeah. around him, his neighbors, his neighbors. Right? Yeah. Okay. So it was family. It was all of that, and he has to take on this situation, this this uh, this job, if you will, this errand. That yeah. eventually puts him into the just the very mouth, the pit of danger and ugly, and he's got to survive this because a he doesn't want to die, but also because if he makes his money, he can keep his house. Yeah, he can keep his life. So that's what I cared about. Is is it cool? Yeah, it's a cool story. Is the mystery interesting? Yeah. Do I love mouse? Yes. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> I love Mouse, right? Dangerous. Yeah. I don't want to be his friend, but in that book, <laughs> in that book I want him to be my friend. <laughs> Mouse and I are tight. And, you know, in yeah. a situation like that, you want somebody like Mouse at your back, right? But that's how Mosley pulled me in. Totally pulled me in. I get it. And I'll, yeah, I'll ride this out with Easy because I want to see how he survives this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was important. Yeah, so I, yeah, I stand by my my personal belief choice mm-hmm. that you need to know your people in the story or your characters. And I'll give one quick example because I know I can talk forever. Uh, <laughs> just, just to take it away from uh, humans and race and and reality to some degree. Another example I use is a little movie, little animated movie called Wally. Okay, now it's a little, anybody who's ever seen it or seen a photograph from the posters or whatever, Wally is a cube that's maybe all of, I don't know, speculate, three feet tall, maybe, mm-hmm. right? It's a little cube, and it's got this tiny little voice when it makes a little, little, little fragile voice, and it wanders around this devastated, abandoned, destroyed world of Earth. And I say to my students, it's all ones and zeros, right? It's, it's, it's CGI, right? So what did they do to make you care about that character? And they said, well, you know, this happened to him and that happened. I said, yeah, but what did they do to immediately hook you into caring why you didn't want that to happen to that character? And a lot of times the students have no idea. They don't realize what was done. I said, look at the size of him. Is is he a big towering robot? Is he is it what do you, what do you get? They said, well, you know, he, he looks kind of helpless. He's small. He can barely do that. I said, right, okay, so right. And and what about his voice? Does it boom? Does it do? no no no? It's a little voice. So what does it make you think of? Back and forth, back and forth. It's kind of like a child. Oh, okay. So how do you feel about children being left and abandoned? Oh snap! Oh. <laughs> They give you a character that's ones and zeros, and, and within those ones and zeros, he's a robot. It's not even a living, breathing thing. And yet, by virtue of his size and the voice, the sound it makes, it touches on your your empathy for children. And then it's an abandoned child. And it only has one pet, this bug. How many little kids with puppies have you ever seen? You know, so they play that. I said, that's what they do to pull you in. 
It's not just the pretty pictures. They are working the story so that you connect with the character because you've got to stay there for 80 some odd minutes. And you're not going to care about so many pretty drawings after a while. You will care about this character surviving. Story comes first. Yep. I love that. What is a quote or something you'd like to leave the audience with? I think you just said it. <laughs> yeah, story comes first. Yeah, yeah, you know, that's a good, good one. one. The, the other one is, you know, uh, I guess the only is the only boundaries, the only boundaries that I guess that are really out there are the ones in your own head. You know, everything else. I mean, there's certain realities we'll all come up against, absolutely. But in terms of being a creative, and even to some degree in terms of how you live your life. It's it starts with you. The boundaries start here. What do you believe you can't do? Check that because probably, nah, you can you can get through that. You know, explore the possibilities of going beyond your boundaries. You know, believe in yourself a little bit more, and then see what happens. And how can the people get in touch with you? Oh. I don't know. Come on by. Uh, <laughs> um, probably the easiest way is is my my email address. Um, I'm also on Facebook is you know Alex Simmons, um, and I'm also uh, on Instagram as Simmons Alexander. But uh, my email address is Alex at Simmons Here and Now dot com, and that's all spelled out. Those are all words. No no symbols. The email will be in the show notes. Yep. Email and, will be in the show notes, folks. As as will, if, if you're interested in any of the other things I do, I'll give him links and he can drop them in there as he, as he will or won't. You know, <laughs> I didn't put that in there, so there. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. This has been such a pleasure this is like I'm glad you my life. This I know. Is, I just, this is I just, everything. Just yeah. no, man, this, is, this is easily top this favorite episode easily. Oh, thank you. So, thank you very much. Yeah, it's like, well, thank you for your time. I'd like to thank you personally, personally, I'm speaking for myself. I'd like to thank you for opening up doors for me and writers like myself. I'd like to thank you for your service. I'd like to thank you for your mindset. I'd thank like to thank brother. you for your art and you matter and you are loved in the community. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so much. Jordan, Um, I will say this, that if anything I've done has helped you become who you are, then I'm, I'm a happy man. I appreciate that because you wrote two books that really connected with me as a child. So you, you really did. It's not just words. Thank you, brother. Okay. Thanks for the chat. And uh, this has been another draft. Now turn off your phones, people, and go write. 